Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is the hundredth episode of the podcast. I was never, I never thought it would get this far. I always thought I would stop after five or six deciding it was too difficult, but here we are. I've recorded a hundred episodes. Yes, that includes all the uh, Couch to 80k writing boot camp. That rec- includes really, really long ones and some that are quite short, only 10 minutes plus 10 minutes of silence. But uh, we made it here. So I thought I'd record a little bonus episode just to, just to kind of mark the occasion. I, would, I really want to avoid... I want to avoid the temptation. I was when I was thinking about doing this. I, I wanted to sort of apologise and be like, oh, I'm going to do one of those really self-indulgent, slightly self-aggrandizing, like hundredth episodes, as if anyone gives a shit. But I don't like that word, uh, self-indulgent. That term, self-indulgent. I think it's a real unhelpful way of thinking about things. You know, like we we life is so short, and. They're so we you should indulge yourself. It's such a weirdly puritanical phrase, self-indulgence, assuming that that's wrong somehow to indulge yourself, to do stuff you like, to do stuff you care about. Um, and that fear of self-indulgence is something that kept me from making this podcast for literally years because I was scared I'd do it wrong and I was scared that I didn't have the right because who the frig am I to do another podcast and be another person doing this and to talk about writing who am I to have an opinion about writing and the same thing kept me from writing my actual novel for a long time as well and now this podcast been out for a while and it's started to find an audience and people like you are listening to it I've had over 100 emails this uh, at least in the last few months from listeners and you all tell me about what you're you're getting up to with your writing the things that you found difficult the things that you benefited from things that worked for you uh, things I've said questions you've got and something that comes up again and again is that fear of being self-indulgent who am I to be allowed to write I'm not a writer. Writers are for, you know, writers are compelled to write. And I just don't think the world is suffering from a epidemic of self-indulgence at the moment. I think the world, we suffer from an epidemic of self-denial where you get this one life and why shouldn't you, you deserve to do the things that you like to, especially something as productive and as unharmful to the environment and as benign and as potentially helpful to other people as writing. That's not self-indulgence and you don't make the world a better place by being crap to yourself. So I say all that as a very lengthy preface to say I'm not going to apologise for enjoying this episode and for feeling proud for having done a hundred. I feel fucking great. It feels really good. I'm enjoy making this podcast so much and thank you for listening if you've never listened before this probably isn't the first one a good starter episode to listen to go back listen to some of my interviews with authors uh listen to the couch to 80k writing bootcamp start on week one day one or listen to my little two minute pitch which explains what it is go back and listen to episode one of the podcast where i explain what it's all about and get stuck into somebody's first page do that um this this isn't i wouldn't say this is a self-indulgent episode but it's certainly going to be one that 
um, is an unusual format. And the idea today is I asked a lot of you on Twitter and on Facebook for suggestions of questions that I could answer. I just thought I'd do a big Q&A session where lots of people send me questions and I'll answer them. Don't mind what they're about, largely about writing, but um, I sent out that call. You responded um, marvellously and I now have a bunch of questions. So all I'm going to do this episode is go through the questions that you sent me and try and answer as many as possible before my time to record this episode runs out which could happen at any point because I have a tendency as you will know if you've listened to episodes before to ramble may it's kind of a combination of being excitable and having lots of connections in my head spiraling out to other subjects anyone who's tried to have a conversation with me will know the experience of Tim Clare opening a new parenthetical statement, opening a new parenthetical statement within that parenthetical statement until I've got like 17 tabs open in the browser of my conversation, none of which get closed. And then you go, what are you talking about? And I say, sorry, what am I talking about? And I never resolve my original point. And it's kind of like being tortured. Anyway, we're going to do that. That's the format for the episode. Let's go, 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 go. Okay, so first off, uh, Lucy asked a bunch of questions. The first of which was, how do you know when you're being original? So this question to me uh, presupposes that originality is good and desirable. So I just want to challenge that to start with and say that it doesn't necessarily matter whether you're being original in a story or not. They, you know, people will often uh, try and sound like uh, wiseacres and say, oh, well, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? Uh, well, yeah, there is. And you can certainly find new ways of saying things and interesting new ways. In fact, I, a book I'd really, really, really recommend is by one of my favourite authors, favourite living authors, uh, Steve Aylett, some of you will have heard me talk about him before, but he wrote a fantastic book that he got published through Unbound called The Heart of the Original, where he talks in detail about originality and why he thinks people fear it and why people pretend to like originality, but when they're actually faced with it, they react with revulsion, which I think anyone writing genre fiction will have experienced. So this idea of like wanting to be original in the first place... uh, I wouldn't get too worried about it. I, I, I think originality is not something actually, although a lot of people and a lot of editors and a lot of readers will say, oh, I love something nice and original. Actually, the main thing I think you have to do with your story is just create a thumping good read, something that makes people want to continue turning the page. And I think you can do that through intellection and emotional richness and formal uh, innovation certainly but you can also do that through just a brilliant plot funny characters something exciting whatever it doesn't have to be original when I go to a restaurant uh, I'm not looking for them to use necessarily original ingredients I just want them to combine those ingredients in a way that is tasty like and we, we need new books all the time readers don't want to just read the same book over and over again so that's just my little aside before I get into this to say that I don't think originality is something you necessarily need to be worried if you're not hitting. How do you know if you're being original? Well, you need to read, right? So you need to read a lot and you need to read widely. Uh, so you're aware of the tropes within your field. In fact, this is one of the reasons why I think it's important as a 
as an author to when you're writing a book actually look actually actively search this is what I did with when I was writing the honors actively search for books that sound like they might be in your ballpark basically in the area that you're writing that sound dangerously similar to what you're writing and you think uh oh shit am I and you, and then because so many writers tell me oh, I I didn't want, I didn't read that when I mentioned a book that's you know has sounds like it might be similar or have some resonances with what they're writing oh, I don't want to read that because I'm worried I'll get influenced no you need to dive in and actively re- seek out and read the stuff as close to what you're writing as possible I think partly just to one it's never as similar as you fear when you hear the synopsis so often it's a big relief reading it two sometimes it will hit a beat that you go oh that's what I was going to do well great now you know that that thing is done or at least it's a cliche and you can decide whether there's somewhere does it work in this in the context of the story in which case can you go one better can you change it can you because probably your first idea the thing that you jump to is going to be the thing that a bunch of other people jumped to um and you can make changes but i just would say you look at things like the hunger games you look at things like harry potter these are stories that resonated with people uh and aren't very original at all really there's there's some innovation in the execution but mainly they're not formally innovative and they are not innovative in terms of the concept but people didn't care and actually a lot of the time you know you can take a concept and and refine it take something you know pioneers rarely get it in the middle of the bat do they and you can you can use it's not the end of the world if you're not original so how do you know when you're being original actively seek out books uh novels that sound as similar to yours as possible go on amazon go online ask people and start reading them and read thoroughly around your subject whether it's in your genre literary fiction or you know if you're writing literary fiction if you're set in a certain area historical period whatever go and read that if you're writing crime fiction try and find writers as adjacent to what you're writing about as possible and read them i don't think it's going to make you an unintentional unintentional plagiarist uh, quite quite the reverse i think it makes you very conscious of what you're doing it makes you think about it uh, the second question she asked, she asked quite a few questions, but I just picked three. When can you quit the day job? Should you quit the day job? I mean, yes, you should quit the, the day. Well, you're not quitting the day job, right? If you become a full time writer. I'm a full time writer, so I have quit my day job, but I'm not really qualified for anything else. So I've had day jobs. Uh, I've you know done lots of data entry. I worked split shifts in a pub doing 60 hours a week of split shifts on minimum wage. I hated them and they made me feel really depressed until eventually, you know, working for Norwich Union uh, in a department called Deaths with a little uh, productivity ticker ticking up one side of my screen and the expected line ticking up the other side. I, I, I think that was the first time that I really had a had a something close to a breakdown. I remember going home that day and lying on my bed and just feeling just feeling absolutely nothing and lying on that mattress all night and not sleeping and just feeling nothing like this is this is my you know this is my life now Uh, and so I've worked really really hard I don't I don't for any moment say I haven't had loads of luck 
loads of privilege. I, I think it'd be ridiculous to not say that. And and just wrong. It would just be incorrect. But I have worked really, really hard. <laughs> and I don't earn very, very much money now. I, I, I really don't. But I feel happy about what I do. And I feel like I've got some control. And so when can you quit the day job? When you're earning enough to live, you can quit the day job. Um, don't underestimate how tiring it is to work a day job and write. You're essentially, I remember my mum saying for the first time, she said, because I was writing a novel and going and, and working a 40-hour week for minimum wage. And, and she said, you, well, you're working two jobs. You're doing an 80-hour week. And I was like, yeah, I guess I am. And it, 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 you go, well, writing isn't, that's the thing I want to do. You are still working an 80-hour week and it will, and I, you know, I had a breakdown and I, how, and I've arguably never recovered from it. I mean, I'm don't worry about me. I'm fine. But you know, I that was when I first started. You know, seeing a therapist, going on uh, antidepressants, uh, and it's hard to treat yourself like shit like that. On the other hand, we can't all rely on. You know, you can't just quit your job and just hope that in twelve months you'll have written a novel that will get you a load of money. So. Should you quit the day job? There's loads of really good writers who still have a day job. I mean, look, I go and teach in in schools. I'm going off to teach a a week-long retreat at Arvon at the end of the month. I do gigs, you know, as a as a stand-up poet. So, you know, although I'm a full-time writer, you know, do I still have a, a, a day job? Well, I have a diversified portfolio within the world of writing. Um... But they're all things that I care about and that are meaningful to me. When I go off and teach that week at Arvon, it's been some of the most uh, fulfilling professional times of my life has been going and teaching creative writing. It's such a privilege to go and work with people who are turning up and taking their craft seriously. You, It can be very profound. It feels like a position of great responsibility. And I'm not shit at it. And all of those things combine to make it an extremely fulfilling time for me. So it's not like you should have nothing except novel writing in your life because I think your work will probably get quite arid but if you hate your day job I think you do have to make a decision about what matters to you and I understand look there's all sorts of things you know if you've got parents who are you know prepared to give you a deposit for a house or something you've got much more uh room for maneuver than you have if you're someone if you're living in London trying to make rent every month you know, and I, I've got all sorts of things to say about how I don't think it's wise to, if you can totally avoid living in a big city with incredibly expensive rents and maybe move somewhere where that rent treadmill is, is less, then, then do so. But that, I don't think that kind of financial advice is something for me to say. What I will say about quitting the day job is it can make, initially, writing can be unexpectedly harder. Um, you have to reckon with your own with probably a learned sense of like avoiding work, uh, a procrastination that has come from resenting what you're made to do, a quite reasonable and admirable love of liberty and freedom of choice, right? And it's hard when writing becomes your day job. There's It's very tempting to start feeling that it's a, an obligation and there are very few obligations in life, very few true obligations in life, but there's what writing is is a decision and a choice and as long as you can hold on to that it will be fine but should you quit the day job yeah I mean I'm gonna 
so it's wow the thing is like my book we can't all be astronauts as you might tell from the title is kind of all about that question and i'm not just trying to crowbar it in to sell copies i just think a lot of people will suggest that you follow your dreams without having to ever deal with the consequences of what happens if you your dream you fail to um achieve your dreams and I, I deliberately with that book went and spoke to as many you know writers who were unpublished writers who tried to be writers and had failed to make to professionalize it writers who were had been published multiple times and were really really struggling and it's tough, you know. We we say people will say, yeah, yeah. To, you know, people either say don't quit your day job or just do it around it. It could be a part time thing, which is is just you grotesquely underestimate how much work and how much heart has to go into making a not shit novel. Or they say, yeah, you follow your heart, follow your dreams, and they do not tell you what to do if that fails. They don't tell you what do you, what do you do if you've got a family are relying on you if you've got like me a daughter who's relying on you for food for shelter for you to be there emotionally and not stressed all the time so when can you quit the day job there are no certainties but i would say if you if you're making enough off your writing and you've diversified your portfolio creatively so you're doing stuff that you care about if but if the day job sustains you and it's not too mentally draining and you could say do it part time and it's something you're good at and it might even give you stuff that you can use in your books. You know, even if that's just being around other human beings, because I was your fucking I'm, I spend my life writing. Right. I'm, it's like I live like locked. My office is the size of a service elevator and this is how much I spend. This is where I spend much of my life. So. I, I think I'll be honest and say I can't answer that definitively. Uh, Lucy but should you quit the day job I think you should I think you should take a you should take a risk on yourself you know you can spend your whole life failing at something that you don't give a shit about and failing to meet the expectations of other people we're all going to die at the end of it you might as well just go fuck it and give it your best all I can say is everybody I know who didn't give up at writing, who kept going, has eventually got published. And everyone who quit hasn't. How do you balance writing and family life? This is the final question of hers that I'm going to answer. Well, that's a really, really good question. And often I don't. I mean, like, I think the first year that Suki was about, um, I think I failed, to be honest. I think I was a shit dad and I think I was a shit husband because I was trying to finish the, 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 the draft of my, the final draft of my second novel. And I'd been so suffering from anxiety and depression and procrastination and self-doubt and just whipping myself to finish it and thinking this is shit and not being able to do it. And it, I wrote a quarter of a million words and then I cut it down and then I was like, nah, 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 and all this stuff. And I think I didn't get a balance. I think I was, you know, selfish, to be honest, because I was so desperate. I was like, I have to finish this. I have to hand it in. Um, and it's hard and it's easy to, you know, when I was young, girl, when I, I, I had real contempt for people who didn't want to give writing their all, who could think of it as a part time thing, part of a, you know, balanced diet of seeing people and valuing yourself. I was like, well, do you want to be an artist or don't you? And I think that's a very... 
I think that's a very macho. I'm not a very macho person, but I don't. I've discovered through my life that doesn't mean that I can't take on some of the uh, deeply destructive assumptions of the patriarchy and uh, toxic masculinity, as everyone's calling it now. And I think, like, I really thought you had to, like, you fucking turned up and you did the work and you got your pickaxe and you just like worked that rock face day in day out and if you didn't then quite frankly you were a massive baby and evolution creative evolution was weeding you out that's how I felt about it and I felt like look you turn up and you do the work and I felt like I was one of the chosen and I was going to turn up and do that work and I'd be rewarded and uh it's just it just will make you sad and it will make your writing shit. So don't do that. So now I work half the week. And so like the equivalent of like three and a half days and the other every day for half the day, I uh, I parent my daughter, you know, like in the day while my wife's at work, I'm a stay at home dad. And I don't see myself on my deathbed thinking fuck I wish I'd squeezed out another novel instead of getting to spend that time with my beautiful daughter who is just the best funniest toughest most surprising lifey wonderful I don't you know people are going to accuse me of being saccharine saying this but she's just the best and I wouldn't change that for anything and if anything has given me I, I just you know I'd rather be a decent dad than a celebrated author and I don't think that's the choice anyway I don't think if I'd spent this time ignoring her that I would suddenly be brilliant so the answer is how do I balance it by just remembering that you can't write if your life's falling apart around you you can't write if you feel sad so and as soon as I've started taking care of that and caring about other people and noticing other lives my writing when I turn up for it has been easier I feel less and less neurotic about it Thanks very much for those questions, Lucy. How am I doing for time? Oh, well, oh dear. Well, let's keep going. Phoebe asked, I think this was mentioned on the podcast once, but I'd love more tips about writing characters that are consistent and iconic, but also growing and complex. And then she phrases that in a question, how do word people better? Okay, so um, how do we make characters that are consistent and iconic, but also growing and complex? Well consistent and iconic is i do like do human beings do you want like again as as with the uh, how do you know when you're being original question the assumption underlying this i think is that consistency and being iconic are both things that you would want a character to have that they are definite and unmitigated qualities and also that a character who grows and changes and has an arc and is complex is also uh, an unequivocal good thing. So I just want to challenge it and say I don't think that characters need to have all of those things. I don't think that being iconic is... I mean, iconic is... I think that's an especially difficult one because that is really out of your control. A character, Characters being iconic is a... That's a kind of cultural state that a character... When a character is iconic, I think. And so... To try and go for iconic, I think is just you that way lies madness because you don't have control over how people are going to receive the, that the character you don't know, and that's actually one of the beautiful and wonderful things about writing a novel and then sending it out into the world is the surprising 
moments where something that you maybe didn't resonate for you finds a real, you know, takes on a life of its own in the reading community. One character who just grabs readers again and again. They say, I love this bit. And you didn't necessarily pick that out as being the best bit when you wrote it. And you go, oh, you know, that that whole exchange, there should be an element of discovery in that. So I don't think it's... I know what you mean. You're saying, like, we want this character to be memorable and wow, and, and a character that people will talk about and say, oh, my God, do you like the bit with, you know, Uncle Matthew? And everyone will go, yeah, oh, that is so, he's so, oh, he's so funny and what a character. So I get what you're saying. Um, the classic example of this, and I've just got it up on my shelf here somewhere, is the distinction is made by uh, E.M. Forster in his, where are you, E.M. Forster? It, I mean, it, and it, he, well, he talks basically, I don't need to get it down. I'm, j- I'm just trying to prove to you that I'm, that I'm worldly by... By the fact I've got E.M. Forster on my shelves, which isn't isn't very impressive, is it? Um, he, he, he talked about the made this distinction between flat and round characters, and and you you know that round characters are growing and complex, that they uh, react differently, and we see different sides of them in different situations. And the consistent iconic ones are more like bit parts or they work more like operate more like props than characters and there wasn't anything necessarily wrong with that that they can be comic and they can prove a point but that the flat characters serve one purpose and round characters with more psychological depth serve another like certainly if you have a newspaper vendor that your protagonist uh, has to have a small interaction while they're hiding from the uh, antagonist's uh, gun-wielding goons, uh, you might not necessarily want that newspaper vendor to be growing and complex. You might want them to be iconic and interesting. You know, like, just have, like, do one... They have, like, a hook to their personality. Like, um, like they always wanted to be... It's clear they start up a conversation and the newspaper vendor clearly wanted to be a journalist and considers themselves to sort of like be a kind of journalist monkey uh, has has ambitions of fleet street and clearly is telling anyone who approaches him oh you know i i thought i, I always thought i could have been a reporter you know i had a good eye for crime meanwhile these kind of like bad guys are moving about and they're completely oblivious to them that character is not is, is maybe consistent, maybe iconic, but isn't growing or complex. But depending on the genre or the situation, that could be very funny and you don't necessarily want that character that day to be feeling quiet and that might be more complex and it might show more, show more growth, but um, the reader isn't going to get to experience that because these characters only exist within the world of the novel. So my feeling on this is... Sometimes it can be good to think of how you're going to what you're so like okay so like with the honors when I wrote that I I in my head canon I don't think any reader will have picked up on this because it's just nonsense really but all the main characters are associated with an element the Delphine is Earth no yeah don't no Delphine's wind uh, Mister Garforth's Earth. Her dad is fire, obviously, and her mum is ice. And they're all introduced in ways that uh, that element is in the first 
couple of sentences that they're in. So that gave like a mood to the characters, which is such a weird way to think about them. But um, and also then I just think about what they want in a scene. What's their, what do they want in this scene? And people say, what's a character's function in the scene? Well, fuck that for now. Let's just think about what do they want in this scene and how do they relate immediately to the person who's in their way? And that creates a dynamic. And, that, and then the character starts to grow out of that and react out of that. And as long as they're reacting honestly, um, th- then as the situation changes, they must naturally grow and it must reveal complexity. Like... The, the reason that Darth Vader isn't a particularly complex character in the original trilogy of the Star Wars trilogy, and he's iconic, right? He's consistent, and he does eventually experience growth, but not to right at the end. That's kind of... But it's because we don't actually... There's no scenes are given to him that reveal other sides of his personality because he gets to look imposing, we don't know one ever challenges him. Why, when you're cha- chasing these people, don't you run? Why do you just stride? <laughs> and, and the answer... And there's loads of situations. If Darth Vader suddenly found himself like in a... And that's why there's all these comedy scenes where you see Darth Vader sort of uh, going going up in a lift with... I mean, this is a completely made-up scene, obviously, but going up in a lift with three children in it who are nothing to do with his task at the moment, right? And he has to make small... Darth Vader has to make small talk. Darth Vader in it in an awkward place Darth Vader going to the toilet those are all things that the character must have to do at some stage he must like have long periods of silence um he must go to the loo and eat but we don't see him doing those things uh because it would reveal a different side to him and that's not his function in the film and there's nothing wrong with that but if you want your character to appear to grow and to appear complex you have to show us them in situations, in a variety of situations. And some of those situations have to be ones that they are not well equipped to deal with. You know, make your character, make your smooth talking hustler who can shoot, uh, can, can shoot tiny uh, dimes out of the air. Um, make them have to, I don't know, make them have to go and visit their sick mother in her home. Uh, and she's got dementia and they have to try and be compassionate and deal with that make your make your sad withdrawn character win a win an online competition and get a check for a hundred thousand pounds and around the world cruise and suddenly she's got to she's outdoors and she's meeting people uh, there's all sorts of things you can do and they don't have to be protagonists they can be side characters where you shift the context shift the frame you're different people with di- in different situations right you act in a different way with say your um elderly and uh well-to-do grandmother i'm stereotyping here obviously uh, than with uh the person who you are currently dating and smooching right i mean i hope so there's a difference there but all i'm saying is look they're so you've got to give the characters a bunch of different situations and they will naturally react differently if you're playing. If they don't, if they're if, if the character just says they're, well, whoop-dee-doo, that's and you've given them a little catchphrase and any situation that they're in, whether then they say that catchphrase over and over again and suck on their um, ice lolly that they're always car- carrying 
and go, well, whoop-dee-doo, when the orphanage burns down, then, yeah, sure, you're doing a crap job and that character is not even iconic. They're just consistent. So those are my suggestions, Phoebe. I hope that that made some kind of coherent sense. On to the next one. Mary, what's the last literary novel that you read that you rated highly? Now, I read this question and I had a sudden, real moment of horrible realisation and self-insight where I, I actually wasn't sure. And then I realised I actually haven't read much literary fiction in the last couple of years. I've read plenty of stuff. It's just I suddenly realised that I've been reading so much science fiction and so much fantasy and non-fiction. And uh, just, I I guess I've had a child. That's what I'll might be my excuse for not having read a lot. But I think at the moment I just I'm so into genre fiction I'm so into weird fiction I'm so into compelling non-fiction and compendia of different things and reading about the history of the world but I don't actually read an awful lot of non-fiction and so I have to go back probably like three or four years before I start getting into literary fiction that I really dug and that made an impact on me I mean I would say um, I really enjoyed reading George Orwell's Keep the Aspidistra Flying, which I thought was just, it just resonated with me being about, being about a self-destructive, uh, bitter, hard up poet who thinks he should be, <laughs> who thinks he should be more recognised by the establishment. Um, something about that. <laughs> really resonated with me. I mean, it's about a guy who's like a real asshole and he's a misanthrope and he hates the people around him and the only thing really good he's got in his life is his girlfriend and he treats her so badly. And yet, as the story went on, I found myself desperate that he should be okay. And the only way seemed to be for her to save him. And so I felt this amazing, amazing com conflict in myself where I was like, I, you should leave him, but please don't because you're all he has left. And I, and I, and I wept reading it. I honestly did. I mean, also I, I'd accidentally left my medication my psychiatric medication at home and uh, I was about to fly to Brunei the next morning uh, so I may have been my emotional state may have been heightened uh, by the fear of having a psychotic break somewhere across the Pacific but um, it's I really en enjoyed that book or Orwell himself didn't rate it very highly he was very dismissive of it but I think it's uh, fantastic I really really enjoyed it but I read I just I read lots of genre fiction and I read lots of like old school uh commercial fiction like adventures and things like that I've gone back to reading a lot of kind of like thrillers from the turn of the century or interbellum thrillers especially when I was sort of researching uh the honors I got into that so I that is probably it's probably keep the aspidistra flying but I'll, I'll probably remember something later and go oh shit i'm such an idiot why didn't i mention this but that was the last one that i really really dug um but i'm a picky reader anyway and not in not to imply sort of super good taste i'm just weird i only really enjoy one in every five books i read so 
I'm just, I'm just an asshole like that. Uh, Emily says, uh, do you ever have trouble concentrating on your writing? And if so, what do you do to stay focused and productive? What do I do to stay focused and productive? Well, the answer to your first question is yes, absolutely. Yeah, I have loads of trouble concentrating on my writing all the time. I think that mainly in me arises from a lack of clarity on what I'm trying to write and a fear that it's shit. Um, and also just tiredness from being a dad, waking up at sort of 6am every morning if I'm lucky, not going to bed till midnight. Uh, it's uh, sometimes eating quite shittily. It, you know, you all of that uh, wears away. So uh, I'm going to do a full episode actually on a bunch of stuff you can do that isn't writing that will make your writing easier. But um, my suggestions are you know, as a super sort of quick fire ones off the top of my head now. Sometimes I find myself falling asleep or starting to nod off and I realise I'm breathing really shallowly. So taking a few moments to take some real deep breaths, nice slow deep breaths in and then exhaling slowly. Be careful not to hyperventilate. You don't want to flood your uh, bloodstream with oxygen. But a nice... And just let some of that um, oxygen exchange for carbon dioxide in your lungs. Sounds really dumb, but... Often in like a hot, muggy office uh, where the only air is just the sort of recycled farts and dust, uh, it can make a real difference. And you just wake up and you get a bit more oxygen to your brain. By the same token, a little bit of exercise. Sometimes I just do a dozen runs up and down the stairs. That can help my concentration. If I am losing focus and it turns out it's because of an anxiety I have about the scene being shit or something to do with the plot, then something I'm sort of slowly getting a handle on is jumping away from the book to spend 10 minutes making lists, maybe listing all my worries about it, but more likely listing useful questions. Uh, so rather, I think if you just list neurotic, what, what if it's shit, then that doesn't produce solutions in your mind, but rather lurid, uh, imagined scenarios of uh, impoverishment and failure. So you can go like, what does this scene need? How well is it fulfilling? How exciting is this scene? What does the character, what does my main character want in this scene? What did I, you know, what do I want this novel to be about? You can ask yourself questions like that. What could happen next? All of those things that get you thinking, what if, and open and expand your mind and get you activating uh, the creative side of you, you know, activating the parasympathetic nervous system rather than the sympathetic nervous system winding you up and getting you worried about threat which starts to naturally winnow down and close down options as your body tries to focus you know like actually that kind of idea I want to stay focused and productive well widening the beam of focus uh, and having a slightly more relaxed wide soft focus can sometimes help productivity so don't assume that tight focus equals productivity when you're writing because you are not just like pooing out prose sausages to get your fiction it's a it's a slightly more i know it sounds arty farty and and and, and, and wanky but it's a it's a slightly more diffused process than that and i think it's important to remember that that kind of daydreamy state is often where a lot of these solutions come so i would just say you know try and be aware of what you're feeling uh breathe deeply maybe do if you you know if you don't have um, mobility issues and you're able to doing some exercise that gets your heart pounding is really useful just for waking your brain up i take freezing cold showers every day and it's been fucking great and i love it and um i don't recommend it because you'll hate me if you do it on my say so but it's been 
wonderful. It's something that always makes me feel better. So all of those things, but just the old list trick is a really good way of working out. You know, try and get aware. Are you worried about something? Is something about this scene not right? Now, that isn't the question to ask yourself. Is something about this scene not right? That'll just make you paranoid and edgy and get you into kind of threat combating mode. What you want to do is like start going, what? do I want this scene you know what do I want this scene to have what's exciting to me what does this character care about all of those things are expansive things that lead to solutions okay Emma what inspired you to write the honours a simple question but one I would love to know the answer to well it's not a simple question Emma it's a really complicated and it's a question that I could spend ages and ages on but what I'll sort of say I'll give you the quick answer what inspired you to write the honours which is that um i was in in 2011 uh i can't remember if i've told this story in the podcast before in 2011 i was doing my second show at Edin- edinburgh fringe uh well, i was doing two shows at the edinburgh fringe in august um you know when you're overworking when the bbc come to interview you and it turns out that fe- uh, the feature that they're interviewing you for is people who burn out at the fringe <laughs> so i was doing two shows every day and i was also running the poetry takeaway which was a, a thing i came up with years ago where people could come up we bought a burger van off ebay and then people could come up and order a poem on any subject they wanted and they would get it free 15 minutes later uh read to them by a poet and then they'd get a copy to take away in a little burger box and i was doing that all i was doing my solo show a show with my dear friends uh luke and john and then uh, the poetry takeaway all at edinburgh and i had before edinburgh i'd been away for a couple of weeks doing gigs my wife had gone away on tour and so i'd been away from her and home for seven weeks when at the end of edinburgh we drove through the night back to norwich and then i got three hours sleep and then had to jump in a taxi to heathrow for a two-week tour of australia and I ended up being in in Sydney about a week into that tour. Uh, I just visited my friend, my old school friend, uh, who I hadn't seen since sixth form, Zoe, who'd moved out to Australia and had a a candle shop in Sydney in the harbour. And I spoke to her, and she said, "So what? What are you doing? What are you up to at the What are you up to at the moment?" She said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "I don't know." And I suddenly realised I'm I I meant it. The show had been tiring, uh, had some good audiences, some all right reviews and some disappointing reviews. Uh, and I was just on the end of this two months of being away from home, away from the person I loved most in the world. Um, and I went into, I sat down by the water by the Sydney Opera House and I started crying. Uh, and... And then I got up because it was like a very public area and I started wandering into the, into the, uh, they had like these gardens there, these botanical gardens. And I started wandering through the narrow paths underneath the trees. And my sight was a little bit blurry from the tears. And any of you wear glasses who've cried will know that that like salt starts to crust on the lenses. So everything starts to feel like you're seeing the world through a fog. And as I was walking, I noticed I was walking underneath these kind of like low trees with these big leathery fruits hanging from them and I I reached this crossroads and I looked around and then I suddenly realized that the 
that they weren't fruits. They, that they were bats. They were hundreds of massive sleeping bats, each one the size of like a child's umbrella. Hundreds of them hanging, you know, inches from my head. And then they were on these big iron bark trees. And I suddenly, you know, being an anxious person, I suddenly looked around and there was not a single path that wouldn't take me through the bats. And I, I froze. And then this gardener who was there kind of raking the mulch. Uh, he was like a he kind of looked a bit like Pat Morita. He had a, like a Hawaiian shirt on uh, white hair. And he kind of turned around and gave me this... He, and he obviously saw that I was anxious and he gave me this beneficent smile. And he set his rake against the trunk of one of the trees. And he wa- he, he turned towards me with his arms open. And, and I just felt this real feeling of like... Oh, like it's going to be all right. And then he just started clapping. Clap, clap clap and he deliberately woke up hundreds of bats and they all took off and now these weren't any old bats they were flying foxes uh which have a two meter wingspan they're the largest uh they're the largest bats in the world and they just all opened their wings and took off and started swooping around me air filled with these leather horrors and if you've ever seen flying foxes you'll know they do not look comfortable in the air they look resentful they look like a horror dragged from the back of um a victorian wardrobe you know like in ghostbusters 2 when that woman's uh she's got like a fur she's got like a fur uh stole or something and it comes to life and jumps onto the ground and this like mink kind of like scurries away it was like that but flying and i ran and he laughed and laughed and he was pissing himself laughing and um i didn't realize it at the time but that gave me the beginning of an idea for something and and that's the short answer to your question uh, there's other threads i could pull on but um I'll, I'll be here all the time i think i'm going to do a bonus show at some stage where i go through a little bit of what went into the honors and the thinking behind it i, I think it would be interesting for some of you for others of you it would be irrelevant to your writing um but if i just do that as an ancillary show somewhere um and just pop it out then those of you who are interested can hear sort of like in depth the kind of thinking that went behind that book might be useful to you if you're thinking about writing a novel yourself uh to hear one person's process okay uh diane says how do you decide when something is done a piece of work might never reach the ideal image of it we have in our minds so at what point do we stop and send it off uh great um how do you decide when something is done well what i would suggest to you is that um don't let anxiety um, make you send it out before you're ready i think and not everyone will have this. I'm sure there are people out there who hold on to things for ages, well past the point where actually they are ready to send out. Uh, they're the best they're going to be out of fear of rejection. For me, it was always a fear of, I was afraid of rejection, but I was also afraid that I was going to miss the boat. That I was going to be too late. So I wanted, And with the honours, I, I waited a long time before I sent it out and I did lots of revising and I gave it to friends. So my suggestion is, uh, the fur you want to get some beta readers you want to get uh, a sort of a, like line of ideally fellow writers and uh once you've written the first thing it's got to be finished right so i wouldn't sh- start showing it to people till you finish the draft and then i would 
I would then, you know, send it out to some friends. Once I would, I would do a first draft. I would redraft that extensively, make notes and redraft it. So do a full redraft, then wait, then do one more read, read through and redraft, which will probably be more tweaking at that stage. Then I think you've probably taken it as far as you can on your own. That's when I would like in uh, find three writers, three fellow writers, and send. The, and ask them if they would be prepared to read your manuscript in return for biscuits and tea or a beer or whatever and then send it off to them wait patiently uh, and when they get back to you and I'd probably solicit that by saying like on Facebook is anyone prepared to do this rather than asking for specific people because really you want people who volunteered because they're the ones who are more likely to actually fucking read the thing um, and then you get their responses and you mull them over you do another round of revisions and then probably think about sending it out because that's probably as far as you're going to get it. I certainly think there's diminishing returns after a certain point. It depends whether you're the kind of person who loves writing the first draft. Oh, I'm making up a new world and then very quickly gets bored and doesn't really enjoy polishing. Or whether you're someone who finds the first draft very hard. But then in the revisions, that's when it starts to get good. And that's when the thrill starts to be for you. When you go, oh, fuck, this is actually starting to read like a story now. Um, I used to think I was in the second camp. But I think now I'm wondering whether it's just different projects have different life cycles. So my suggestion is, and I didn't realise I was going to give such a prescriptive answer. But I'd say you write your first draft. You do a complete re, um, second redraft. I don't care if you fucking plan for ages or your pantser. You still need to do a full redraft where you read through the whole thing, uh, paint up targets, make marginalia note, notes for changes, re redraft, leave it in uh, on your computer for a month, reread it, make a final uh, set of revisions, and you can start doing the kind of like small line edits at that stage. Then send it out to beta readers get their feedback, make notes on their feedback, do a final set of changes, and then send it out to agents. Um, Orla says, how do you know when you should give up on a particular piece of work? You don't. You don't. You There's no... Uh, you. No one is going to... A buzzer won't go off. You'll have loads of times, right, where you're like, oh, fuck this. Fuck this, I don't want to do it. Uh, you don't know. That's the damnedest thing right so but what i would say is if you are if you have been miserable writing it for more than three months and that misery doesn't show any let up when you learn to be kind to yourself when you improve your inner talk to yourself when your self-talk gets better if you're asking yourself good questions how can i do this what could be an interesting scene um if your misery doesn't let up then uh while writing it if you genuinely think there's a you've genuinely had a couple of goes at rewrite at changing the fundamental part of it and it still doesn't feel good doesn't feel right then maybe you should give up especially if it's like a massive novel uh and you're only twenty thousand words in then maybe you should give up but i would say most of the time you should try and finish stuff even if you do a shitty job you should try and finish it just because it gives you the shape of it i remember when i was learning guitar and uh, my friend 
he's like my friend Andy's piece of advice to me was like whenever you're trying to like learn a bit like a lick or something like that don't uh don't keep stopping at the bit you make a mistake on always play the whole thing through even if there's a bit you can't do because that'll otherwise otherwise you won't get to learn the end bits and the finish of it you'll only be working on the bit you make a mistake on and it you'll learn it lopsided you have to like go through and slowly build it up and so that's what i'd say if there's a bit that you're struggling with have you considered jumping past it and writing a later on bit if there's a character you don't like I, I and there's often a grieving process right there's often a grieving process where what you don't give up is the whole it's like do you need to give up on the entire piece of work or can you just give up on this idea of what the character needs to do in this scene? You know, I, I think so often I have like a grieving process with a piece of work where I'm like, this isn't working, this isn't working. And then eventually I'm like, go, come on, come on, I've got to write. And then something breaks and I go, it's not going to work. I'm going to have to give up on this whole novel. And then having given up, I look back at it and go, well, now I know that I'm going to give up on the whole thing. I don't feel so bad about losing this last 10,000 words I've written and changing so at this scene, instead of leaving, he actually challenges his mum. Well, if that happens, then wouldn't that lead to this? Ooh, ooh, and then sometimes... So sometimes you kind of, like, give up on a piece of work and actually what you end up doing is loosening up your cl your grip on the way things have to be. And, um, and then you find that it's actually a much smaller piece you can just snap off and the rest of it is better than you thought so be careful about giving up on a whole thing too easily i think it's really really good to see things through um and you don't want to just constantly be kind of like in that infatuation stage uh and moving away whenever a novel gets difficult it will always the you know uh, the mountains get bigger the closer you get to them right as you start marching towards those distant mountains you're planning to climb, they get bigger and bigger. And it'd be easy to turn around and see another mountain range off in the distance and go, well, those ones look smaller. I'm going to march over to them. And you march all the way up and, oh, no, they're getting bigger as they get closer. And you turn up and you go, and then you look back at the ones you were just going to and you go, oh, no, those these look definitely smaller. And then you start marching towards them. It's easier. The new project always seems easier because it's a, the, the model of it in your mind is simplified and you don't know the hitches yet. And so I would say the more you can complete things, the more you can take it as an exciting challenge rather than uh, an arduous test to be endured as, as something as something that is going to improve your writing and build your writing muscles, even if it's not going to work as a saleable thing. I think, and I realise time is precious and I realise you care about these ideas. So I don't think I'm saying this frivolously, but... I think like working through it in that way builds a certain toughness, can be deeply satisfying um, and will teach you things. And sometimes you just surprise yourself and you don't know what the story is about until you reach the end. Phyllis asks, what board game do you enthuse about to other people who love them? And what board game do you enthuse about to other people who don't? So a game that I... Um, really like to get out uh with people who love board games is for those of you who don't know i'm a really big uh f f board game fan and tabletop role-playing fan i don't talk about it on the show uh, uh well i do 
all the time. <laughs> but but I don't talk about board games very much because it's not relevant to writing. But um, if you play board games and you love them, then something I've been playing a load of and really, really enjoying is Concordia, uh, which is a game of... I mean, the theme sounds super boring. It's like, it's the Roman Empire and peace is spread across it. Can't you sell your wares and get the biggest trading network out of all the players? But it is really fun and satisfying and you go around and you send your little boats out and you build little houses in different areas and you produce and you get bricks and you buy things and you pick up cards and you buy stuff from the market and it's just everything slots together so entertainingly now for those of you who don't play games particularly and and, and st something like that confirms all your worst prejudices about how shit and boring uh board games are uh, may i suggest to you the wondrous the wondrously fun and simple uh, game Rhino Hero from Haber Games. It costs a fiver and is about a uh, and is about a rhino superhero who's a bit too heavy for the buildings he climbs up. And basically, it's just you and a group of players um, building a house of cards together. It's like reverse Jenga, and every now and then you have to stick a wooden rhino on the stack. Uh, without making and who, and if you make it fall down then whoever's got the fewest cards it's still in their hand wins it's really fun it's really simple it's suitable for ages five and up you can get it out in the pub and have a brilliant laugh uh but old kind of like gamers who think of themselves as being very sophisticated can't help but warm to it either i really enjoy it. it's never failed when i got it out and it's just really silly and fun okay so uh the other question Phyllis asks is, oh, is Secret Vampires your favourite song by the pop group Bis? The answer is yes. Um, Je ne sais quoi asks, would you advise forcing yourself to finish what you start or trust you're finishing the important one? So this is, um, I think I answered this within Orla's question, but I, would you advise forcing yourself to finish? No, I wouldn't. Don't force yourself to do anything. You can't force yourself to do anything. You will find ingenious ways to get around forcing yourself. Your writing is not an obligation. Even if you're a professional, it's not an obligation. Um, you, are, you are a sovereign power within your own life. You'll make yourself miserable if you try to force yourself. Even with exercise, right? I go out, I'm going to, once I finish recording this, I'm going to go out and do a run. I'm doing, uh, really, I'm doing uh, interval training at the moment, which is where you like run at your hardest for one minute, jog for three, run at your hardest for one minute, jog for three. And I do all of that. And then I finish off and try and finish 6K. And it's really brutal. And it makes me feel knackered and desperate. Um, I'm not forcing myself to do it, though, even though it's not intrinsically pleasant in the moment. I'm doing it because I choose to, because I know at the end of it I'll feel better, because I know it's so good for my panic to actually practice having my heart racing and my breath going. I know it's good for my cardiovascular health. I know it's good for uh, weight loss. I know it's really good for my mental state. I know it makes me feel good that I've completed something that wasn't easy, but I'm never, ever, ever forcing myself to run. And I think if I tried to force myself to run, I would just find my way. You know, you are you end up like basically like a donkey who is just being whipped more and more to carry uh, the load up a hill and eventually just sits down, realising I'm going to get whipped whether I walk up this hill or not. 
So I might as well just have a sit down because I and you know what? It's pissing off the person whipping me by doing this. I'm frustrating them. That gives me some control. If you try and force yourself to finish something, you will not finish it. You will find it impossible. Your your flow will reduce your word count day by day will reduce until you basically have this horrible like you're just like you're getting like 50 words out a session and they and they burn. It's like you get cystitis like creative cystitis of the pen and it's and it's grim you can't force yourself don't do that i would advise finishing stuff that you start uh because you'll learn stuff and you'll learn stuff by finishing stuff that wasn't very good and you don't know you know trust you're finishing the important ones are you finishing the important ones that's a bit you know that's survivorship bias really you need to I would just suggest finish what you start, see it through and do that, do that for yourself and then edit. But don't force yourself to do anything in writing because you will fail and your writing will be shit and you'll make yourself miserable. Anna asks, as an aspiring historical fiction bod, I'd love to know your views on research. Are you a thorough mini expert in your subject before you even start? Or do you start then realise you need to research? So that's a great question. Uh, the answer is uh, the second. I start and then realise I need to research. I, The honours, I never meant it to be set in 1935. I was always uh, originally thinking about writing a story set in 2008. Uh, and then, for reasons which won't be apparent unless you read the novels... Um, I needed to go back 70 years and I ended up counting back to, to well, 73 years and I counted back to 1935. And so 1935 is completely arbitrary and it was just going to be a prologue to the portion set in 2008. However, it sort of took over. I just, because of the way I write, I want to know, I just wasn't sure, I was like, did they have plug sockets in 1935? Did they have electricity? Mm. And so I started reading. I realised how little I knew. And then you read and you go, oh, National Grid was invent came online in 1935. Actually, it's quite a live question. What do plug flexes look like? Well, you know, in a stately home, they'd probably be uh, sort of made out of uh, a, a, like a night, like a, they'd be made out of a, like a thread uh, rather than, uh, plastic and I just like learned stupid stuff like that actually reading about you know electricity in stately homes and seeing like the first place in the UK for one of the first state homes to have electric lighting and how like it would regularly burst into flames and they had to like beat beat out the uh the lights with silk cushions you know you start to discover stuff that you then just go I'm gonna nick that and put that in the story so I and then I became obsessive and then once you've so I but actually I researched for two years before I even started but that was definitely avoidance behavior where I was reading stuff because I was scared to get started but what you have to do is sit down start and then you'll hit that thing like you know I think like Orla and Je ne sais what were suggesting that moment where you go oh should I give up on this this is getting hard I'm not sure what to write and that's because I like to write rich I like to write detail I like to feel like I know what I'm talking about and then you go away and you start doing directed research where you now know what you're looking for and then everything you discover suddenly is giving you ideas it's fucking great you go to the library yes you might waste an entire afternoon uh 
reading about horse vaginas because you're easily distracted. Uh, artificial horse vaginas, I should say, uh, which was a very interesting topic, just not uh, necessarily directly relevant to what I was writing. But then you find stuff that's really compelling that you think this is going to be fucking great and you put it in the story. And a lot of your research you should not include in the story. I think some of the worst historical novels I've ever read have been ones where clearly the author was like, I'm not going to waste a single word of stuff that I found in my research. You should be prepared to throw everything out. And there's days of research that just ended up being boiled down to a single sentence in my work. Uh, and I would say I, I read a stack of books uh, probably half as high as me again and a lot of those only gave me a paragraph in the book I'd read one book one thick book and I'd get like a paragraph out of it but those things all but it just made me feel like I had permission to write about 1935 I knew the I knew a lot of the laws I knew the political situation I read a lot of contemporary writing so I knew what people were saying at the time I read the newspapers I research what was on the radio not just in uh, in that year but in the individual months so I made sure I wasn't making any mistakes with mentioning things like the uh, secret league of oval teenies uh, I just made sure that because they actually came out that year uh, so there was like little things like that I I have got like 10 books on guns and uh, the different rifling on different shotguns and i've got like diet like pages of diagrams of uh scatter patterns of pellets at different ranges with different bores and different gauges of um different pellet sizes uh most of which isn't relevant to the book and i wouldn't put in because you'd be completely bored to tears right but i it was important to me that if delphin shooting gun i phoned up the uh, mid norfolk shooting school and booked myself a shotgun lesson and went and fired a gun i'm not a big fan of guns right i don't like i took i took jane's gun recognition guide uh, on my honeymoon and read it on the beach but what a catch i am you know like and i didn't I didn't include all those guns in the book. That would have most of them would have been ahistorical, but it was not You know, I got to. I, it was useful to me to know what a broom handled Mauser looked like and what it feels like and what it shoots like. So I, I, I'm really into research, and for any genre, I'm really into research. It's one of the least champ. It's one of the things people who don't write don't appreciate at all. But if you want to improve the quality of your writing, the surest route is through. Uh, focused research and as I said before I really recommend buying yourself investing in a reverse dictionary by Reader's Digest um, the hardback one that isn't in print anymore I think it, you can get it secondhand though orange and pink uh, reverse dictionary uh, by Reader's Digest uh, which where you can look up a general word like door and it'll have loads of technical words it will have diagrams of things it's a great book for quick spot research i've also got things like i've got a book on weather which has different names of cloud patterns the ultimate guide to british birds um i've got you know various wildlife books uh period house fixtures and fittings 1300 to 1900 um i've got the pocket book of british wildflowers uh, I've got a book of different uh, rock formations and minerals. So you might start to build up a little library like that for spot research. Um, and also I would say make sure you're researching as you write because 
I, I couldn't retain any of the information that I had about British country houses, uh, fashion in the 1930s, uh, the political situation, all these different things, secret societies. I, I, I don't, it's not in my head anymore. I was able to hold it for a certain amount of time and then just, it's like trying to carry, um, carry beer in a sieve, right? And so you can hold that information in your mind for a certain, you can saturate your brain with it and then you'll be able to write and write and write. But it will go, it will go if you don't get it down on paper. So you, there's a sweet spot. And what I wouldn't suggest is doing loads of research and then, year, and then you know, doing two years of research and then sitting down to write because you won't retain it. Lola asks, how much did you query before you found an agent? Well, therein lies a tale. Um, I've got like quite a vexed history with agents. Uh, not just a, a sad history, to be honest. Uh, so the short answer is, there isn't a short answer. I'll just, I'll just tell the story. And I'm sorry if this doesn't fully answer your question or if it answers your question, but in an inefficient way. So I... My first agent wrote to me while I was on the uh, MA in prose fiction at UEA, which must have been like something crazy like 18 years ago now. And, you know, you put your work in an anthology and, and two agents wrote to me and said, would I send me their work after that anthology went out at the end of the year? You will write a short story or something or an extract. And it goes out and two agents read that and said, will you send me your work? And I think like a lot of agents just read the whole thing and send sort of queries to everyone really so I got those letters and I was like fine and I sent out the first three chapters of a novel I was working on at the time called Joshi Replied which was a fantasy novel about a boy with the head of a dog in a sort of poorly rendered uh fantasy world which kind of like had a parallel situation to the 1931 Muckden incident where the Japanese invaded Manchuria it was re a real mess you guys it was a real mess two parallel stories that didn't connect by the end of the novel and but I was trying my best anyway I sent the first three chapters to her and she got back to me I got a phone call at 8 30 the next morning I was like oh you know being just being coming out of the student days I was getting up late my phone went off. I was like, nobody worth speaking to phones at 8.30. So I ignored it. And then I got a message saying, uh, I read read your your um, extract that you sent me last night. Really liked it. Can you send me the rest of the novel? I hadn't read. I hadn't written the rest of the novel. That's my first tip to you. Have the novel finished before you sent it off. So then, then began like months of me desperately trying to finish this novel while holding her off, which was the dumbest fucking thing I've ever done. Made myself mid miserable. Wrote a shit novel sent it off she came back with lots of suggested revisions stuff she didn't like I was absolutely not sideways I was like oh why did I thought you loved what I did what have I done wrong I worked on revisions I got m more and more ill I was working a full-time job I was trying to write I went through a big breakup I it was just such a dark time in my life and and I was writing badly anyway um eventually she sort of took the novel and I think just by sort of like being ground down, sent it out, got rejected by everyone who looked at it. Um, and then, uh, and then, and then she, and then just out of nowhere, uh, 
uh, she she died of cancer at at 35 with two children who were five and three and uh it was it it just was the most brutal and crap thing for she just didn't des- <laughs> just what a thing you know just what a thing and you just i just just a human being taken so young it's just unbelievable anyway um so i didn't really do anything for a while and then i met um uh at the port ellis literary festival i was very drunk um met somebody uh who called maggie who uh was very lovely who we got drunk with and who was brilliantly um brilliantly uh vivacious and opinionated and could really stand her ground with all of us and was just so entertaining and lovely and it turned out she was had become a sort of assistant at a literary agency and she offered to look at my work um she took on that book joshy replied um and just tried sending it out to a couple more people all of whom said no quite rightly it wasn't very good even when i'd done all those revisions on it um and then i sent her the first chapter of a non-fiction project i was proposing which ended up becoming we can't all be astronauts about basically being a failure at writing and having had a breakdown and she emailed me from the airport where she was going on holiday like from the airport wi-fi basically to say i love i've just read this i love this can you send me the rest i want to pitch this and i was like oh shit and so i went and did a load of writing now non-fiction is a bit different to fiction you often pitch without having finished the entire book with like a plan and a couple of sample chapters and so we shopped it around um eventually everyone turned it down except ebri who we had an edit there was an editor there um really nice guy who was just like took it on i think as a kind of passion project uh gave me a small advance made a bunch of suggestions uh, which i think probably made it more interesting but i think some of which i wasn't weren't really what i was going for and you know in the end i think you know that book has got some of me in it and i you know there's some bits i'm proud of there's some bits that i'm not so proud of there's some jokes in it that i think are a bit off color that i i kind of slightly regret um but you know but it what it is what it is you know this is if you if you publish stuff you're going to have stuff and you're going to put it out there and uh you'll hopefully you'll get better um and then and then just before it came out uh my agent maggie i got the phone call early in the morning from my friend luke to say that she'd um to say that she'd taken her own life and she was 29 and i think that was when i i tried to go to her i tried to go to her funeral and I'm not very good with directions. I'd always be late for lunch when I went to meet her. And I ended up getting lost. And I pulled over a pair a pair of like suit 
trousers over a pair of blue jeans. And I ended up getting lost and crying in a stage door of a theatre in Soho. Just, it was the first time I cried about her dying, actually. I just, like, doubled over and was crying. And I, I, I... It was weird. The agency that she worked for got in touch and were like, "Okay, so we're going to like, can we like continue with promoting your novel now? And I said, I don't feel. I just don't I don't want to have a discussion with it. I don't want to do this anymore. And they were kind of weird about it. They seemed to find it really difficult that I would. Not I would have lost my interest in. In writing after. I just, she was so amazing and it was the worst, worst thing to lose her and I miss her all the time and I regret not telling her how much I'm, she meant to me uh, because, because I was, you know, not good at expressing my feelings then and I wanted to get everything perfect and that's what I would say about that is it's more important to get something out there and I wish that I'd just sent her a text message saying how much I loved her. Um, and so years passed without my having an agent. I just left it and I decided I wasn't going to write fiction or books anymore. And then... And then um, I started getting the idea for the, the, the honours and then I realised I'd need an agent. And so... This time I waited till I had the complete manuscript completely finished. I'd sent, given it to friends. I had gone on a couple of writing workshops just to get myself up to speed. I worked through it, left it, worked, redrafted it, gave it to people I trusted, got their feed, full feedback, revised it again, kept going until I was happy with it, and then... I asked around friends for recommendations for agents. I looked online for agents who dealt with science fiction and fantasy because, um, and that does winnow down your choices a little bit. I looked up, looked for authors that I liked, who they're, who they were represented by in the UK, and then I sent out a series of emails. And some people replied quickly, some people required, replied, took a little bit longer, and then I sent out my first three chapters, which I thought were pretty good. And then I got some... I, I, in fact, I, I'm not sure if I sent even sent a query letter so much as just sending the first three chapters. I'm, I don't... And my query letter was really just like, Hi, I'm, I'm doing this. I've got a book. Do you want to see it? I don't. didn't really waste too much time worrying about it. Like, either your work is going to be fucking great or it's not. I wouldn't really worry about the query letter, like, absolutely killing it. And agents who say, I just want to see a brilliant query letter, I don't think they're the kind of people that you want to be working with. I think you want people who want to work with books that are fucking great, that make them sit up at night going, this is amazing. I think if they're the kind of person who just wants someone who can write a slick query letter, uh, I would really question their judgment just fuck them you know like it's fine if the query letter you know their name and you know who they represent that's cool right you want to be enthusiastic about them you want to go god you look at you oh i noticed that you are represent such and such i love their work that's cool right but you don't have to get it some perfect formal you don't have to know everything uh, about there's not like a, a a template that you have to follow is what i'm saying you just have to sort of be 
polite and professional and enthusiastic. Anyway, uh, three agent, four agents asked to see the full manuscript. I had a phone chat with one, a face-to-face meeting with one, and then a face-to-face meeting with another who, having read it, immediately asked to see me, and she was really enthusiastic. She had a lot of problems with what I've written. You know, she had a lot of things she said, I think you can do this better, I think you can do this better. What were you trying to do here? Challenged me in loads of ways, was the best, was just amazing, actually. And I went with her, um, just because she seemed to get it. She seemed to care. And, And then she sold it. She did an amazing job, and I've never regretted it. She's just my agent I could go on for ages about how wonderful she's been but she's just been amazing and thoroughly thoroughly just professional but just also ridiculously dedicated and uh, encouraging and so that's it that's what I would say so the your question was how much did you query before I found an agent the the technical answer to that is not at all Uh, I got an agent approaching me which is the least sympathetic thing I could possibly say to you. Um, but with the latest book, it was I sent out a bunch of targeted query letters to my first choice of agents that I thought were brilliant and seemed like humans and not kind of like dicky sleaze bags who look after mega stars and are just like have reputations for being fuck nuts um just people i thought would seemed really cool and lovely and professional and um i was blessed to find someone who cared about my work uh uh so next up how are we doing for time oh jesus okay let we uh, i'll do three i'll answer four more questions okay Alex asks, any tips on getting through the big first revision after completing a novel first draft? I find it much harder to summon the enthusiasm to edit than I did to create. So, yeah, there's two types of people, as I said before. Like, there's the the authors who find it really difficult to revise, but they get loads of new ideas and they're constantly, like, having their current project uh, disrupted by the ideas, fire hose just, like, drenching them with new thoughts. Or there's the people who really find it hard to get going but once they get into that and I've you know got a couple of friends I'm thinking of who really love that moment where you've got a first draft and then you get to start revising and it starts to look like a book and you go oh and you cut stuff out and suddenly it starts to look slick and it starts to move and you go oh shit this could be a thing and it starts to be cool um so any tips on getting through through the big first revision after completing a novel first draft um to summon the enthusiasm to edit than I did to create. Well, the thing is, you edit. I would just get rid of that idea in your mind. This, this false dichotomy between editing and creating. Editing, redrafting is creation, and not only that. It's the you are. If you're not seeing it through, do you like? If you are able to. So I found it ages. For ages, I, I found it really difficult to be persistent when I'm looking for something in the house. My wife will say, can you help me find this? And I go, I'll give a cursory glance and go, it's not here, it's not here. Do you just give up. I'll buy one online. And it took me a while to work out that that wasn't because I'm some feckless git, but because I was experiencing a real blast of anxiety. Like my chest would tighten when I couldn't find something and I would struggle and it was, I had low self-confidence. And she really encouraged me in, in a completely um un 
uh, passive-aggressive way, in a genuinely nurturing way, I said, look, Tim, sometimes she doesn't ever call me Tim. <laughs> she doesn't ever use the, call me that. She said, look, sometimes in life, all you can do is do your best. And it sounds really dumb that I hadn't thought of that before. And it sounds maybe slightly glib advice, but I have started, it started to be a touchstone for me. And I, well, then I would, when I would look for things... I start going well let's I'm just going to do my best and I would keep going and you know I've surprised myself by how many times that bears fruit or at the very least how spending an extra 10 minutes looking is not the end of the world and doesn't ruin my day and I sometimes find something else that I wasn't expecting to look for so look this is what I'd say is like when you start doing your first draft of your novel Alex I'm not being rude it's, it will be shit if it's not shit, you're a mutant and you don't need my praise because, frankly, you're going to have an easy life of just like bashing out perfect first drafts and selling them. So well done, you. I don't mind saying to you, I think it's more probable that your first draft is going to be shit with some redeeming features, but mostly shit. And actually... When you go back and redraft, that is your first opportunity to go. You're not editing. You're going, look, go back at it. And you're going, how can I make this fucking sing? How can I make this go from being this just like a block of poop uh, to being actually a thing that a reader can read and go, fucking hell. And I want you to start thinking about your work with a sense of pride and a sense of it's not just about you doing this for yourself it's about how can i lay the table how i've got this honored guest of the reader coming and they're going to give me their time in order to hear me tell my story how can i honor them by making every sentence worthwhile interesting arresting how can i make every scene how can i make this scene better how can i make this even better how can i make this tighter how where can i cut words to make this story move faster where have i used uh where has my brain slightly gone to sleep and i've relied on a cliche when i could have engaged the reader's five senses when can I, you know can you every 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 sort of like four pages have you made sure that you've got at least one appeal to the visual sense, at least one appeal to the auditory sense, at least one appeal to the sense of smell, at least one appeal to the sense of taste, at least one appeal to their sense of touch? Like, yeah, of course, they're all rules of thumb, but it's your chance to pack it with value. It's your chance where you've like you might have baked the kind of like dry two sponge halves right but this is where you get to like pack the middle with cream and maltesers then cover it with custard then cover all that with white chocolate you know like it, and then cover that with chocolate buttons on top like this is the point where you actually get to make it good this is where you get to make it a story that someone might one day say oh, you read this and press it into someone's hands this is where you get to make the story and make the moments where someone reads it and they get to a reveal and they go fuck you and they throw the book out the window then they immediately dive after it to grab it because they must know what happens next this is the time when you get to make the book so good that people who are in crappy jobs get to read it on their lunch break and get relief from the difficult thing that's going on 
in their life. This is the moment where you get to write a book that gives someone some relief when they are sitting in the waiting room while their dad's on a ventilator dying. It gives them a place they can go, an adventure they can follow, a beautiful world. This is where you get to make other human beings' lives full of more quality, more joy, more magic, more excitement. This is the moment where you get to write a book that the world has never seen before. In all the history of the universe, this collection of words, this story, these characters, these feelings, these moments, these turns, these turns of phrase, these thoughts have never been thought by a human before and you are giving them to someone. You are giving them to hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of other human beings you are connecting with and you are sharing this distilled time. So the time they take to read your book is not the time you took to write your book. So you are allowing them within that time. You have poured quality into this into this small vessel of this book that allows them to live many more hours than they spend reading it. They, they, they expand within them, these books, and they give them new thoughts and new ways of seeing the world. And you can genuinely change people's lives, but you have to put the work in. Otherwise, it's just it's fine. But do you want your work to just be fine? That's the motivation I think you should be looking for. Doesn't mean it has to be literary or experimental. But if you want to write an adventure, write a fucking amazing adventure that blasts someone's eyebrows off with a searing explosion of merit. Make it fucking brilliant. Because I think you can. And that's what you've got to get your head around. There's no reason why you can't write the best book of, of, of next year. There's no reason. You have the mental capacity. You have the skill. You have the taste. You love stories. The only excuse you've got is not turning up and do, making that effort and making that your goal. Rachel asks, who is your favourite member of Steps and why? Lisa, I think she's the prettiest. Alex asks, when I read books by other authors, what should I be looking for that can help me with my own writing? Well, that's a very good point. Two things, really. Content and style, right? Look for moves. Look for beats, like dialogue beats is a great one. How do they handle dialogue? Uh, what do characters do? What actions do characters do when they're talking? Read it and nick them. What, what, what actions do, if a character we know is supposed to be angry, you know, if there's an argument, how do they handle an argument? How do they demonstrate an argument? There's building tension. How do they handle that? Now, not all authors are going to do these things well. Uh, so you want to try and look for their strengths and uh, rob them. You know, like if the story is exciting, you want to try and see how do they handle, what is the first sentence that they, how do they open a scene? How do they close a scene? These are things that we often don't stop and actually check. How do they handle the end of a scene and the transition to a new scene? What, what, what kind of beat do they close a scene on? What's their first page like? If it's uh, genre fiction, how do they? is there a concept that's introduced at any stage? And how is it introduced? Is it introduced directly? Is it introduced through a piece of found text? Does a character ask about it? Is it... Are we include through contextual clues? How do they do that? So I think ask yourself, I think it's a great question and I probably could go into this in more detail. But when I read books by other authors, what should I be looking for? I think like style wise, that's often what you can get the most out of. I think nonfiction is one of the best places to go for content and so is your own head. Um, but I think 
like at the basic level, just make sharpening your focus and going, okay, what am I going to look for today? How do they open and close a scene? Really, really useful. And if you do this, I should warn you, there will be some authors that you enjoy less because you become more critical of them and you see some, you notice some things you don't think they're doing so well, some moments where they've been a bit lazy. So be aware of that. Uh, but I think it will be to the um, to the ultimate good of your own writing. And um, finally, Aniko asks, um, how do you finish stories? <laughs> well, that's... I. I, I I feel like I could just start crying <laughs> answering as in when do you stop iterating on them I could do that forever so I think we've covered that a little bit we when you know when is a story finished would you advise yourself forcing to finish how do you know when to give up on a piece of work it's just approaching that from a different direction when do you I could do that forever so Nico's got the opposite problem right of like going I never want to stop I can't I want to keep working on stuff forever and certainly some authors polish more than others uh, but I think it can become a coping mechanism. I think it can become a form of procrastination in and of itself. I know somebody who sort of worked on the same book for years and years, constantly the genre was changing, sort of as a memoir, and then at one stage it was kind of like a murder mystery, then at another stage it was a weird prison break, and then it was a farce, and uh, it, the science fiction kind of like came up in it. And it just, I felt like they just didn't want to move on. And at some stage, you've got to move on to the new stuff. You can always park stuff. You can con yourself and go, well, I'm putting that, you know, I'm putting that in this. I'm stabling that, but I'm going to get it out a bit later on. Um, so I would say by having new ideas, because they're going to they're going to they're going to push things down through the hopper and those th and, and force their way in. So by doing early, ex you know, idea generation exercises, those list exercises that I talk about all the time, you know, making lists of things of plucking ideas out of the sky. Ideas are, it's like the pollen count. Some days have a high idea pollen count. Some days have a low idea pollen count. But at any stage, there are these transparent spheres floating around you, each one of which has an object, a sound, an idea. And you can just reach up, take one down, uh, twist it apart and look at the object inside. Take another one down, twist that up one apart and look at those two objects and collide those objects together and sparks will come off it and a new idea will form. Ideas are really cheap. It doesn't mean that they're bad, but they're easy to come up with. But you have to make the effort. So that will be my thinking. Uh, if like the subtle question underneath this is like, how do you let go of stories or how do you get the gumption to send them out? Um, consider trying to get a group of writers around you uh, who can encourage you to do that. We used to have Submission Sunday where we'd all meet up and we'd all bring all the work we had that hadn't been placed you know poetry and short stories whatever um a big stack of a4 envelopes and a copy of writers and artists yearbook and the internet and we'd sit there and listen to music and look through each other's work and pick out what we thought was the best look at different magazines and competitions that were accepting submissions and then literally just fill a bunch of um, envelopes with submission covering letters and work and probably get very drunk while we were doing it. And then we'd seal them all up, stick uh, s uh, stick the postage on them, and then just take it down to the post box and shove it all in. And that was a submission Sunday. We were nerds, admittedly, but it was about 
honouring the work we do and believing in ourselves a little bit. And it's okay to do that. And the final question from Aniko is, writing right now feels like a completely safe space. That's wonderful. I'm glad you've got that in your life. Is it harder to feel like that once you've been published? What can you do about that? Yes, that's brilliant question yes it is much harder to feel that about that once you've been published because you feel like you've got you now got something to defend something you could lose a reputation uh imagined or otherwise you feel like you're a professional so it immediately gets harder um and you sometimes are relying on your ability to pay the bills on your writing which is a whole extra dimension and there are people you know do you know what the hardest i found it to write of late was when the reviews came out for the honours and loads of people just said that they really liked it that sounds like a humble brag it's honestly not um because I felt those are people who I would let down if I made a mistake in my next novel and I think it was John Cleese that I've seen the quote credited to where it says you know something along the lines I paraphrase but uh, creativity becomes impossible when you become afraid of making a mistake like originality and creativity by definition are a kind of interesting mistake you put two things together that aren't meant to go together it's a mistake it's an error so i'd say you have to let go of some of your pride i think you have to let go of some of your dreams of finally getting it i think you have to admit that you're not an expert i'm not an expert i'm barely a writer and i'm okay with that i think i've identified less and less strongly with being a writer as time goes on and more and more with just being me tim a human being because i think trying to define yourself too much through the writing identity although it can seem very addictive at first. And when you do, you know, big readings or, uh, you know, I'd, I, I've done some wonderful events with like 200 people in the audience and they're going, oh, tell, give us some writing advice or tell us about your novel. Oh, that's really interesting. And that can feel great. And you feel like really, you feel for the first time in your life you have some control. Maybe you're not a complete faker. Actually, it gives you a very constrained sense of your own humanity. And it's much better to just be okay with taking pleasure in going for a swim outdoors eating an ice cream none of these things rely on people liking your work or not none of them rely on you having done a good job of writing a scene today you know you are intrinsically worthwhile because you're a human being and i think the more you can plug into that the more you can take back your writing as a source of enjoyment not as a pivotal test of your worth as a human being or a trial to be endured and if you and perversely if you start to care about that too much it'll make your writing shit as well so you know it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy i think the less you can care about it and the more that you can approach it as something nurturing as a practice as a you know and i am being kind of slightly twee and buddhist and and, and semi-spiritual and, and i do identify as, as as being at least in part a kind of like atheistic buddhist probably a nightstand buddhist but i you know i it, it's always made a lot of sense to me and i do meditate and i don't drink and i do think it's important to love people so i think the more you can make writing a part of your life 
but not identify as a writer, the more you'll realise that you've never left that safe space. And I think I'm going to stop there. Thanks very much for listening. Everyone who's listened this far, I just want to say thank you for all your emails. Thank you for everyone who's shared the show or told someone else you should listen to this. Thank you for anyone, you know, if you've ever listened to a whole episode of this show, just thanks for being here with me. I just, you know, with with writing, it it, it can come and go, the feeling of mastery or even enjoyment. But there's always a way of getting it back and enjoying it. And you don't have to have gone to any special course to have the right to enjoy writing. You don't have to be a certain age. You don't have to have any inherent talent that other people have told you you've got. You just have to love stories and have a go at putting words together which is your right as a human being i really hope that i get to do another 100 episodes of the show i love doing it it's uh, enriches my life a huge mu- a huge amount being in touch with all of you folks and i hope we get to go on and meet new people and try out new exciting things so thanks very much for listening today um, i hope it's been useful to all of you and i hope there's some stuff that i've mentioned here that uh surprised or got you or got you thinking and uh, as always if you want to get in touch with me uh, let me know what you think send me your 250 uh, words of your first page um, then you can do that via my website timclairpoet.co.uk i'll put a link in the uh, show notes just click the contact me bar you can get in touch and if you like the show you know i always appreciate it if you can drop me a couple of quid via my coffee page if you just get click on my website there's a button that says buy me a coffee and if you haven't read it yet why not buy treat yourself to a copy of the honors it looks so beautiful in its wraparound cover with its red monochrome uh, design it looks amazing there's also a copy you can get it in south korea now you can get a, a copy in korean and it looks so cool um and i think you'll enjoy the story and just i just want you just have a lovely lovely week and i hope your writing goes well take care bye bye <laughs>